0: Welcome to Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Claire Zauke, Health healthcare Director here at Citizen Action is with us. Claire, welcome. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be
1: here on Zoom.
0: We do continue to uh, record separately from home, safely from home, um, and that also means Robert Craig. Our Executive Director is tucked away at his home but he is with us this week. Robert Craig, uh, thanks for joining us. Good day, as always. We are going to continue to spend uh, basically the bulk of the show talking about what has been going on in terms of the continued uprising and protests uh, connected uh, to, to the murder of, of, of Floyd. And so we want to continue to just say we at Citizen Action along with well, many other people uh, continue to have members and other folks uh, responding uh, to the immediate protests and events. Uh, and these, we want to say, we're, we're at like day 14 now of continued straight events here in Milwaukee and lots of protests around the state. Uh, it is just remarkable at the size and scope of these protests uh, in areas of the state that probably haven't, really seen protests in maybe some of our lifetimes, or if not since 2011, um, and certainly did not see protests with the sort of first wave of a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, 1,500 in Wausau, 250 in the world, but just huge turnouts and all over the state. Um, And that continues. And we want to continue to encourage folks to participate, to show up, and to support this movement. It's very important. But what we want to spend some time actually talking and at least starting the conversation about today, and we'll only begin to scratch the surface, but to start to have a conversation about what are some of the responses now? We politically, we we are, after all, a political uh, radio show. And uh, so we wanted to spend some time looking at both what's happening federally. Um, And in this case, I want to spend some time talking about what the House Democrats have proposed, and we can also maybe discuss some immediately Republican or Trump response. But then also want to have a conversation about there's bunches of states and municipalities that have started moving uh, proposals to immediately respond, and we'll also talk about what's happening here in Wisconsin. But, Claire, I wanted you to get us started uh, with a conversation about what is happening uh, at the federal level, we know, uh, I believe a couple days ago, when I people to Tuesday, uh, that the House Democrats uh, laid out uh, a proposal to respond uh, on police reforms. Claire, so give us, uh, if you could get us started talking about what's in that and just uh, your, your thoughts.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, this is a proposal, um, a bill called the Justice in Policing Act of 2020. Um, that has been proposed by um, House Democrats, um, including the Congressional Black Caucus, and with um, the support of Speaker Pelosi. <clears throat> um, and this is, um, I would say, I would characterize as establishing a national standard of operations for police departments and removing a number of um, sort of bad practices or making illegal a number of. Uh, Bad practices that we have seen to be um, used in uh, deadly situations by police officers in recent years um, and an attempt to put in some new um, safeguards. It's not a mass, uh, massive national defunding of the police. It is not a significant deviation from the norm in the way police systems operate. Um, Like I said, it's more um, sort of a federal attempt to standardize um, some good and bad practices across the country. And I'll list a few of those off before we um, get to having a more uh, in-depth conversation about it. Um, But some of the practices, that practices that it makes um, illegal Nationally, uh, And when I say make illegal nationally, it's important to realize that really, like Congress's authority, a lot of it has to do with how they fund states. So basically, it says if you employ these practices, you can't get any funding from the federal government for your police force. Right. So things like um, uh, prohibiting use of the types of chokeholds that killed um, Eric Garner, in New York in 2014 and George Floyd um, last month and earlier. <clears throat> um, in uh, Minneapolis, um, but again, I, I want to point out like it's important to note that it's good to make these things illegal, but choke, that chokehold that killed Eric Garner in New York in 2014 was illegal at the time of his death, right? So um, just because something is illegal doesn't mean the practice of it is always going to stop and it's important to talk about the culture of police, um, as uh, the policing system as well as what is and is not legal. It also bans uh, no-knock warrants in drug cases, which is the type of uh, warrant that was executed on Breonna Taylor when she was killed by police officers. Um, and so I point that out to show that these are sort of specific actions that are in response to recent police killings that are um, causes or impetus for um, some of the recent uprisings. Um, there are other things in here, but I figure... Um, So it's not just be talking for five minutes. I would uh, toss it back to you or Robert to see if you have
0: any thoughts. Yeah, Robert, wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on.
2: Look, I think obviously what the House did is the boldest thing that's going to be proposed at the federal level. It's already being uh, called too bold by Senate Republicans, and let alone Donald Trump. So it's good that they're out there. Uh, I think it's very clear that what they're doing is narrowly police reform which of course is the trigger of this whole protest movement and, and that and the shocking murder of george floyd and it was released with uh one of uh, george's brothers giving very compelling testimony yesterday at the uh u.s capitol uh felonious floyd and so but it's not that the, the marchers are asking for something much deeper there's a lot of confusion about what defunding the police means because it's it quite frankly it's more of a of a kind of movement street demand that it is a completely fleshed out policy but it, what refers to is the size of police force forces in general the amount of incarceration we do in this country is completely abnormal and it it's shockingly larger and and bigger uh, than anything that preceded the 1970s, it came as a backlash against the 1960s—a white backlash against both a black liberation movement and the anti-war movement, and the perceived uh, loss of order. And it is not normal in other developed countries either. And so, if you're if you're dealing with with uh, it, so just saying that public safety is policing and nothing else leads in this direction. Now, what this bill would do, the House bill, if it became law, is it would outlaw and try to crack down some of the worst practices and try to, like a national registry of bad cops so they can't go from place to place. We know that the, the cop who killed uh, uh, George Floyd had 18 different disciplines and no one knew about him because of, of the secrecy involved. And so the lack of accountability is huge. But even if we did all of that, which is going to be hard, so I don't want to assume that's done. Has a lot of power that's at the city level. We would still simply be making an unjust system better, right? But the whole theory that the way to deal with uh, segregated communities based on race, where people don't have the same opportunities and live and live essentially a second their lives as second-class citizens, is simply to patrol the streets with a lot of police officers. A bulk of which don't even live in your community and see you very differently than they would see uh, their white middle class people. That they, uh, it, it, when they patrol those areas, that is unjust at, it, at its heart. And you should invest in public health, mental health, uh, violence prevention. You just there are very few things. We send cops for everything. Everything that should be a social worker or a mental health worker, uh, we send a cop with a gun. And it makes no sense. And it's way more expensive because uh, each individual police officer is an extremely expensive investment. And then you have the police unions, which it's very important to point out This is not a problem with having a union. These are the most powerful unions uh, in the whole labor movement. They're not part of the labor movement because they don't identify themselves as such. They're not part of the AFL-CIO, the vast majority of them. There are a few that are uh, around the country. And quite frankly, it's about having the power to, to shield uh, cops from accountability for, stri- for murder in broad daylight, which is that that power shouldn't be held by anyone. It's not just, so it's not a union problem. It's the, it's the power we give police problem, and it's expressed in terms of the power of their unions. But they absolutely should have a right to have a union, just not one with that kind of power to override the public interest and morality.
1: Yeah, something that Robert said uh, reminded me of one other thing in this bill that I wanted to point out, and that is about power. And I talked um, on a previous podcast about um, why it's hard to hold police accountable in court sometimes. I know we have a special guest coming up who I assume is going to talk more about this. But something that this uh, bill does is make two changes that um, are aimed at making it easier to hold police accountable in court for misconduct. And one of those um, is changing Uh, or sorry, removing the um, qualified immunity for law enforcement. Um, So this is um, a form of immunity that extends to a lot of government officials that has currently is also extended to police officials, saying that you can't sue them in uh, federal court without having to meet a very high standard. So this would um, hopefully make it easier for the family members of uh, victims of police abuse to um, take uh, police officers to court for uh, damages. And then also... Um, yeah,
0: so
2: that's civil law.
0: As hold on. To the law, hold but very uh, important. We've got to yeah. take a break. Unfortunately, guys, we have to take a break for for our radio show. With that, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. Find us at Citizen Action, WI.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. Uh, Claire, I had to so rudely interrupt you and Robert before the break. Uh, You were mentioning two different, two additional things that were in the federal bill. And I wanted to give you a quick opportunity to just tell us about the second uh, before we introduce our guest. Yeah,
1: so I talked about the um, uh, civil court. Uh, changes uh, that are in this bill but there's also some uh, criminal changes or standards to a criminal prosecution of police officers and it's this is a, uh, a small nuance but an important one that um, the the standard for prosecuting somebody for criminally um, is changed from willful disregard to reckless um, as a standard um, and that is important because we know that just because somebody isn't a police officer isn't like willfully shooting somebody doesn't mean that they aren't being reckless. And a lot of these deaths are the cause of recklessness. Um, So that I think is also an important change that I wanted to mention.
0: Thank you. And with that, we are going to welcome our guest this week. And that is uh, Mark Thompson. Mark Thompson is not only the president of uh, Citizen Action, but he is also an attorney at uh, Gingras Thompson & WOCs here in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show.
3: Good morning, thank you for having me.
0: So, Mark, uh, oh, and I forgot to also mention also on the Wisconsin Election Commission, and maybe we'll get to that at the end. Mark, you were very busy today, but-
3: We were, right, we were there eight hours plus yesterday.
0: Well, we, we'll, well, we'll maybe get to that at the end, but the reason we had you on, Mark, is obviously this this moment in time is historic, um, and we spent a lot of time last week and in our first segment talking about that, but uh, wanted to have you on to talk more about your experiences as a defense attorney, uh, in particular representing the Milwaukee Bucks player, Sterling Brown. So wanted to, you know, not only get your thoughts about that case, but how it applies to where we need to go. Uh, Mark, uh, just so first of all, thank you for joining us. Then, yeah, your thoughts on that.
3: Sure, you know, I've been pursuing and representing individuals that have had their civil rights violated and for over a quarter century. And I've had many, many cases against the city of Milwaukee and their police department. And it is a unique moment in time There's new city leadership. We have a new city attorney. We have, uh, it it appears, some backbone with some aldermen standing up and taking independent steps to, you know, uh, prevent sort of the militarization of the police. And so, you know, Mr. Brown was out on the streets with the people this past Sunday and with fellow Bucks. And Mr. Brown's case, is so on point and what he has been advocating from day one is so on point with what is going on. And it is time, and frankly, I ask the people listening and people to support Mr. Brown and his fight for justice because at the focus of that is some real reform, you know, in the department, in the city of Milwaukee. And why do I say that? You know, in January of, 2018, he was on a date, and he went into a store, the Walgreens on National, and he came out, and he was approached by Officer Grahams, a white officer, who came up and pushed him, said, I own this, called the police, and, you know, in a matter of minutes, he was surrounded, two sergeants orchestrated a takedown, and they tased him. An Officer Samarjic had pulled his gun and holstered it and then pulled his taser. But that's how close Mr. Brown came to be a George Floyd. You know, he was right there. And from day one, everyone, the you know, the police department had the videos, all the body cams, and they didn't release them. And because if they released them, they would have immediately, immediately, everyone would have known what they knew later, that this was a racist attack on a young African-American and but for that he was a Bucks player, frankly, you might not even have me on here. But from day one, he has said that before there can be any change in Milwaukee, you first have to identify the problem, and when you have an institutional racist policy in place, you have to identify it. Now we alleged, and we actually had we had met with the city before. The city attorney, then city attorney, answered Grant Langley, and uh, his Jan Smokowicz. They're they're gone now, but for years they had defended the worst of the racist police. Over the last quarter century with our tax dollars. And you have to admit the only way you can start this healing process, the city has to say to Mr. Brown and the public, we violated our officers violated his civil rights. Right? I mean, you can't heal until you call it out. You you can't change it until you name it. So Right now, that's what you have to do in Milwaukee, first. Second, then Mr. Brown said, you then you have to identify what is it in your training and your discipline in the department that has to change the policy. Because a policy that's not enforced doesn't matter. And, you, you know, this morning's paper, and I, I heard the earlier segment, you were talking about Congress Bill. I mean, we had Congressman Sensenbrenner, right, yesterday, say, what happened? I can join in this because he had eight, this officer had 17 or 18 prior complaints. If you don't discipline for violations, nothing changes. So how does that apply to Mr. Brown? Right, One of the officers that had stepped on Mr. Brown and the officers on his leg you know, he was just down, stomping, you know, on his leg. That officer had prior incidents of excessive force. He's just not disciplined. So, and, and this officer wasn't disciplined for using excessive force with Mr. Brown. So if you don't discipline, nothing will change. So what is it about that whole process? Right? And this comes to a very important the there, People are talking about defunding policing. One thing that shouldn't be defunded is training officers on anti-racist policies, right? And when people violate those policies, then they need to be disciplined. Some officers were disciplined with Mr. Brown, but they weren't disciplined for their racist attack. The officer that uh, pushed Mr. Brown, said, I own this. They had, they I mean, they retrained him twice. They said, so-called retraining, twice. They never disciplined him for the racist attack. They never called him out. He went through training and at the end of it, he still said, I did the right thing, right? Now, why is he there? If you retrain him and he, he thinks your training is meaningless, that's not training. Right. If you sit down and you say you can't do this because this is racist and they virtually said that and he says it doesn't matter. I'm right. What does that mean? So that is the current department in Mr. Brown's case, he said, I have to I'm here to fight for people that don't have my resources or my visibility or my faith, because we have to move Milwaukee to this new world where we're at and we are at
2: that crossroads. So Mark, obviously the Sterling Brown case is is a great Wisconsin example of the problem and Mr. Brown himself has was very has been, you know, has been out in the protests and gave a very moving speech over the weekend. So even though fortunately he wasn't actually permanently injured uh, and has and because he's an NBA basketballer has the ability to like fight this. The average person wouldn't. If this was an if this was a working class African American who had a service sector job, a frontline line worker, uh, they wouldn't. They and you might take the case. Maybe they get a good lawyer, but they'd be much less likely. And so it seems like we need. and I know you're saying this, Mark. Fundamental structural reform. This isn't about. Just changing a few practices and procedures. This is actually comes to the core of not only how policing works, but who polices. Because you got to wonder, Mark, uh, how we could have people who are who are on taxpayer, taxpayer dollars, extremely well compensated, act like in this case they act like, they look like an armed gang in the in, in the video to me. There was there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, <laughs> first of all.
3: It, and I, I haven't even talked about the, sort of the cover-up and the lies that they've told, right? I mean, one of the sergeants, during an internal affairs investigation, where they have to tell the truth, right? Said that he saw a gun in Mr. Brown's backseat, in the car. That was part of their great fear. It was a lie. Under oath, he said, oh, that's a lie
0: never discipline for that, right? And with Mark, I'm going to have to quickly take a break. We'll get right back to you continuing the response. We are listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're citizen action. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. Mark, you were talking when I had to interrupt uh, for our break. I'd like to give you an opportunity to continue.
3: You know, the, it, it gets to where are we going to go as a people, right? The, I mean, the police should not be occupiers. They shouldn't be viewed as this foreign entity, especially in African-American community, right? I mean, I, I live on the east side of Milwaukee. I don't feel like the police are occupying my neighborhood. But I know people that live in the African-American community. They feel like they're being occupied. Now, that has to do with the militarization of our police. That's part of it. You have to completely readjust, right? The police, and and I want to talk about this. There are many, many good police officers that serve and protect. I mean, I've had police officers, Milwaukee police officers, tell the truth under oath and expose, expose others. Okay, so there are people that want to be the best of policing. So our problems are always focused on what is it about the institutional structure and why can't we get rid of what we view as what people say like some bad apples. It's more than that though, right? When you have a system that doesn't train anti-racist policies and when you violate that and, and you don't get disciplined. That's what Brenner said in Congress, right? We are going to just promote it. If we don't stop it, if we don't get rid of them, of course it's gonna happen. Of course it's going to happen. And you know, Mr. Brown's case is also unique. There was one of the officers posted racist social media posts. That officer was fired but it wasn't fired for the racist post, it was fired for social media violation, right? You're not supposed to put it on. Yet, so, I mean, so you got to call it out, right? The chief went out publicly, said it was racist, but if you look at the discipline, it had nothing to do with that it was racist.
2: Hey, Mark, I'm sorry. Well, no, let me ask you a quick question. Jay Johnson, the former Homeland Security Secretary and You know who he is from the Obama administration. No flaming radical, you know, of kind of a mainline Democratic guy. He said on one of the Sunday morning shows that it's not just the training. You're certainly right about the training. He said that the people who were attracted to policing, a lot of them, cannot be trained. There is a culture where a lot of the people just need to leave. And and it doesn't mean there aren't very good cops there as well, but that there is a culture and we attract people who are there, uh, really, to be bullies, and this is Jay Johnson saying this, and he's a ma- person of color, he's African American, but also he's not a flaming radical. Uh, what do you think of that? If people
3: see Mr. Brown's situation, and they watch eight officers attack him, take him down, and then they they see that only the only person that was fired right, is the person that posted, but not the person that pulled the gun, not the person that tased them, not the, per- not the two sergeants that lied and orchestrated. I mean, they actually said they didn't use force, so they didn't fill out a use of force report, right? They're in and on taking them down. They ordered it. Okay, so when you see that, and that is, that's more than just bully, though. That's, that's, this is like, how do you completely humiliate a young African-American, right? He's with his date, right? It would have been my kid. It would have never happened. I mean, Graham's wouldn't have even touched me. He stopped there to go to the bathroom, right? And he said, in quotes, I went to take a piss. And Mr. Brown almost got killed. And the city still won't publicly say we violated his civil rights. Now, come on. If we're in the middle of a historic moment, and the city of Milwaukee, my mayor, I voted for him. City council, I voted for my city council, right? City attorney, right? I mean, I'm a participant. I'm a taxpayer. It is time to get off the dime and say, we are going to give Mr. Brown justice. And part of that is changing the policies and procedures so other young African-Americans are protected. And we institute a situation where we actually enforce good policing and discipline racist policing. We need to fire the racists, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be my follow-up question to Mr. Thompson is, you know know this system pretty intimately now, um, certainly through um, this case that you're describing, but it sounds like many others as well. If you if you could choose or name what you think are a few of the specific, most critical things that in your experience, the city of Milwaukee Police Department should change uh, what, what would, you know, you say policies and procedures, what would you name um, explicitly as the first well, thing that they should do?
3: One is I would start, I would say We have to be an anti-racist police institution. It's it's not enough to say we're going to train against implicit bias. We have to say we are going to train our officers to be anti-racist, pro-people, anti-racist. Now, training people to do that is meaningless if you don't discipline them when they violate their training, okay? If you say, because right now they, they, they said, oh, we we you know we're we don't have a racist policy. I said, well, Officer Graham was not disciplined for his racist attack on Mr. Brown. Look, at you retrained him. You said you can't come up to a, a, a young African-American, push him and say, I own this, right? I own this. I mean, this is like, I mean, the Marines, Navy, we're finally getting rid of the Confederate flag. But I mean, this is like, we are so late, right? So the African-American community is saying enough. They don't want to hear, oh, we're just going to do a policy. They want the world to change that. If you're going to change it, you have to discipline. And when somebody violates or they, they're shown their conduct is racist, then you got to fire them. You can't let them be on if they continue that conduct. And when they use excessive force over and over again, you got to get rid of them. You must. You must do that. And then the last component is you have to say, how do we value the insult? I mean, for years, the city attorney, Grant Langley, took every federal civil rights case to federal court because he wanted mainly one jury. He did not want the African-American community in Milwaukee deciding it because I mean we've had a policy in this city of saying we are going to not only let white people decide civil rights cases or minimize the, the amount of African Americans that are going to be decided. So we have to those are institutional changes. You know and then you know then you have to say we, we we you talk about it it's like you have to start thinking reparations how do you make it right? Right? And so those are the components, I really think, that when the city and the department knows a person's civil rights were violated, they have to say, we violated your civil rights. They don't do that. They don't do that, right? They may settle the case, but they will not. I mean, that's Mr. Brown has said, we can't talk resolution until the city says what you've witnessed was a violation of the young African-American civil rights
1: wanted to point out one thing that um, you said that I, I think is so important is that uh, you know people often don't recognize the importance of what seem like really bureaucratic elected positions in local government and one of those i would say would be the city attorney right it's the citywide seat but it's not like the person that you call when you have an issue because you would call the mayor's office or you would call um your alderman or woman and um and so it's not like a super sexy position that people think about a lot, but as you laid out, it is, has played um, a critical role in the way that the city handles these cases. And, um, you know, it's an office that can decide, um, you know, how rigorously to defend and in what manner um, certain types of behavior. And so I just love that you are laying out for us um, how important these positions are and why it's important to be active and focusing on, all, on positions like the city attorney's office.
3: As, right. as citizens, you know, and I, and I think if Chairman Spencer ran a race and won it, based in part on saying we have to have accountability by uh, the police department, he has publicly said that he wants to change how the world works, and he was out marching along with Mr. Brown the same day. So. As Mr. Brown's attorney, I am hopeful, and I can say this, Mr. Brown is hopeful that my city, my city attorney, my city council, and my mayor actually get it right and use this historic time to do the right thing. What Spike Lee said, do the right thing. And that means admit that his constitutional rights were violated. Change the policy so it doesn't continue to happen. And discipline officers, because that's how you stop it from continuing.
0: And with that, we are gonna have to go to break. Mark, could you stay on for a little bit into the next segment um, and and chat just a little bit about what happened at the election commission yesterday? Because we think that's also really critically important to making change in the future. I'll go put on a different hat. With that, we're gonna take a break take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We've been talking to Mark Thompson, who uh, is the attorney who represents Sterling Brown, and we've had an outstanding uh, uh, conversation about uh, what changes really need to be Happen in order to start to make and create the kind of uh, uh, public safety we really need in 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 our community. Uh, but Mark, for this last segment, I actually would like you to put on your other hat uh, that you one one of your hats that you wear, and that is you are a, a member of the Wisconsin Election Commission. And uh, yesterday, the Election Commission uh, met all day. It sounds like uh, to talk about how to create safer elections this fall, and in particular to talk about how do we do a better job of uh, promoting and educating the public and making everybody aware of the absentee ballot and how it's used. So, Mark, could you give us the highlights of what the election commission decided yesterday?
3: Sure. sure. You know, frankly, the discussion started the prior meeting, actually, and then I think it's a historic vote. 6-0 to and that means there's three three Republican members of the commission and three Democratic Party members of the commission, six zero, to mail to two point seven million registered voters in the state. A, a letter that does three things: well, tells people how to vote. Right, you can vote in person, you can vote in person absentee, or and, and we're doing it in light of the pandemic, you can respond to this letter and request an absentee ballot. Never in America I mean not never in Wisconsin history has such a broad mailing gone out, providing an opportunity for citizens to respond and request an absentee ballot and, and vote that way. Now, that is crucial to me. You know, last election, the April election, if we didn't have a federal court that intervened and said we're, we're counting them for a week after the election day, 79,000 votes likely wouldn't have been counted. Okay. 79,000. So what we need now is because who knows what the what COVID-19 is going to be doing to us in November. And so I encourage everyone, register to vote. The commission is sending out a postcard encouraging people to register. We're sending out this letter, it's not going out until September, to 2.7 million people, saying you need to be registered to vote. That encourages registration. So here's how you vote. And given the pandemic, you can request an absentee ballot you know go get your id send it in and do it because what we want to do is get as many people voting early so we don't have an avalanche of absentee ballots hung up in the post office last time i mean last time we had a million ballots in virtually a week and so we ended up having bins of ballots sitting in post offices and not dealing right so the commission is implementing a way that you can track your ballot because we're we're going to do a special postmark so we are trying to do what we can and remarkably it's been six zero now the letter hasn't gone out yet but we had a very good discussion yesterday and virtually you know there i i'm confident there's going to be consensus at next week's meeting
0: so again, Mark, next next week you'll be meeting, and this is when you'll finalize in the letter formalize that the letter would go out, and this whole process would go forward. Is that correct?
3: Right. Well, the,
0: the vote is that it's going to happen. We're just trying to
3: figure out what the the letter is. And I, you know, look, you know, Bob Spindell is out of Milwaukee. Used to be on the Milwaukee Election Commission. You know, he wants to put on this form. You got to be a citizen. You know this is like how ridiculous is it, right? This is going to registered voters. You're already proving you're a citizen. You probably already voted before. You know this 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 far right Republican myth that there's fraud. I mean, give me a break. Twenty sixteen, we reported like you know the last general election, twenty eighteen. We referred out for forty three people for possible voting in two states right out of three point somewhat million people 43 i mean this notion that you can't trust your fellow citizens is just it's the biggest lie designed to create divisions designed to try to prevent people from exercising the franchise i mean look and our problem okay we have to get people out okay this is like this is You know, 45 cannot have another term. Okay. That, you know, at at one level, everybody, the opposition has to agree on that one thing.
2: He has to go. So anyway. Well, I want to thank Mark for what he's doing, uh, because... Elections are about, and, and the right to vote is about good election administration. We all saw what happened this week in Georgia, where it really looks like the Secretary of State, who has a lot more power than any, and, than, than any elected officer has in Wisconsin over elections, uh, not only disenfranchised lots of people, but takes no responsibility whatsoever. And so in Wisconsin, even though this is a 3 3 split commission, I want to commend Mark and the other Democratic members for getting this kind of majority. Now, it's limited, as we all know, in that you really should change the uh, requirements for mail voting to make it more accessible during a pandemic, but that would require the legislature. You still have to deal with things like the witnessing and the photo ID and other things that are not necessary. And it seems to me, Mark, that if if you maximize mail voting... Uh, and then early voting, which is something localities can do and do it the full three weeks with lots of locations, you can greatly limit the effect of the pandemic because we could be in a second wave in November. And even if we're not, it's still going to be dangerous to vote in person in any crowded space. Yeah, I mean, that's the reality. So
3: the the, uh, the Election Commission has limited powers, as you said. We can only... Enforce what is there. the uh, It is, however, a very good thing that we have six of us agreeing, you know, to 2.7 million people, registered voters, for getting this opportunity. Now, it's going to be up to us, Citizen Action, other folks, to make sure people learn about it and act on it. Okay, we're going to get a letter out. People have to return the envelope. They have to get the ballot, and then they have to go vote. And the uh, I am hopeful that you know this. You know, Black Lives Matter. This last two weeks, I mean, there has there have been fundamental changes made in some places. I mean, some significant changes. The fact that you know. Sensenbrenner is lining up and saying, we have to do something reflects that there are a lot of people on the streets and people are paying attention. And it reflects that, you know, white folks like those of us here today, we have to do more to talk to our other white folks and get it done right. Okay. I mean, we, we, we have this burden Okay, it is our obligation to make sure we we get out to vote. Okay, and it's our obligation to say we can't continue building or enforcing a racist society. I mean, it's just you know, it's
0: time. Mark, really want to thank you. For as Robert said, everything that you're doing, both in your professional, but also the, you know your, your civic involvement with the Election Commission and helping uh, lead here at Citizen Action, uh, but also taking the time today to talk with us and, quite frankly, you know provide some really great insight as to where we need to go based on one really critical case, right, uh, Sterling's case. It's uh, very insightful. Um, and wanted to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, I'm,
3: I'm always uh, honored to be here. I'm just lucky to work with you folks and uh, be part of Citizen Actions. That's the way I look at it. So I'm the lucky one. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. And uh, with that, we are going to uh, start to wrap up this podcast. But before I do that, I want to follow up on some things that were said. It is really, really important Uh, for folks to get involved in what's going on in our communities and to speak up and uh, to work to start to implement some of the things that were talked about today. But also uh, wanna encourage you if you haven't, go online and fill out your absentee ballot request now. Uh, Please do that, it's critically important and you can do that for the August primary election and also the election in November and get yourself set up because we don't know what's gonna happen this fall. And it is critical that you uh, vote safely and the sooner you do this, the uh, as Mark said, the less will have sort of a clog or a backlog. So please do that. And with that, we're gonna wrap up this battleground discount uh, and we will see you next week.